Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Instead of using meditation as a duty, something we're trying to fix things, can it be this much kind of like softer, accepting way of moving into this innate tenderness? Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. What I'd like to talk about today is who meditates, question mark. Who meditates? That little sentence has a, a, a twofold meaning. The first meaning is who should meditate? Who's out there meditating? Should everybody meditate? And the second meaning is who is it that's actually meditating? Who are you? The, the deepest understanding that can come from meditation is finding out who we really are. The Dalai Lama said everybody wants to be happy, everybody wants to suffer less. One of the ways to be happier and suffer less is to meditate. Uh, in some ways, I think some people think of this group as a meditation group. And I've been sort of a meditation salesman for several decades. And the longer I do this, it isn't really clear to me that everybody should meditate or that everybody who is meditating isn't getting out into sort of deep, murky water without a life preserver. When we're talking about meditation today, it's not going to be a conversation about here's how you should meditate. 
so much as an overview of what meditation is and what it isn't. When we were with Maharaji, for example, when people would sit in front of him and start meditating, he would he would distract you. He would throw a piece of fruit at you. If you were a male person and you were seated close enough to him, he would grab your beard and pull it. He was not really encouraging meditation. And in fact, somebody once asked him, how should, how should I meditate? How should we meditate? And he said, meditate like Christ meditated. If you've read the Bible carefully enough, there doesn't seem to be too many meditation instructions there. So somebody said, well, how did Christ meditate? And Maharaji closed his eyes and he actually started weeping a little bit. And he said, he lost himself in love. He gave his life for the Dharma. He loved everybody. How we get to this place of losing ourselves in love, loving everybody, serving everybody, one way is meditation. I am a recovering mathematician, and it was very useful for me to spend a few decades quieting my mind down. But for a lot of people, it isn't really clear to me that meditation is the way to go. So many people come to me and say they had a good meditation, they had a bad meditation. And in truth, meditation isn't about having a good one or a bad one. It's learning to be with what is. So I thought about a bunch of people that I know. I'm going to mention them and their relationship with meditation. First of all, I've got a very close friend named Lawrence. He's in my San Francisco group. He's a very committed Orthodox Christian, the Eastern Orthodox Church. He's very deeply into the prayer of the heart, which we talked about a few months ago. And whenever we do a guided meditation in that Monday night group, which we do every week, Lawrence tries mightily to not roll his eyes and play the game, but he really, he really is not a meditator. He just likes to keep saying the name of Christ, being with Christ as an ongoing mantra. And he finds meditation kind of boring. He says, meditation is boring. And I try to tell him that, well, it's really going to exactly the same place as saying the prayer of the heart. It's getting to that place where the heart is open, where we're, we're, we're in uh, communion, we're connected, the heart is spacious. But for Lawrence, trying to meditate, following my directions, really isn't something that he's very enthused about. I have gone through various stages of being a meditator myself, going through being very committed to Vipassana and Zen, deepening concentration and mindfulness, to do, doing a lot of deity practice, heart practice, to getting involved in non-dual, non-practice Dzogchen of just resting in spaciousness. I don't know if this surprises anybody, but I don't meditate a lot anymore. I try to be present all the time. I try to say God's name when I'm not looking at a computer or talking to somebody. I try to be in my body when I'm moving it. And I do find that when I have enough discipline, which isn't my strong suit, to actually sit my butt down on the cushion, it, it, it makes me happier. It, it helps me relax. It helps me focus a bit. But being somebody myself who's so goal-oriented, it's still a challenge to not use meditation as a goal-oriented activity, to get to a better place instead of assuming 
this is the perfect place, that the distraction, that the busy mind, that the agitated body, that the tired body is exactly as much an expression of the Divine Mother as it's going to be after I meditate for a while. There's a woman in one of my groups, I won't mention her name, but she's been meditating and praying for many decades. She's a really lovely person. And she's fairly consistent in complaining about having a bad meditation, too many thoughts. Thoughts are a problem. I've got another friend on the East Coast, Anne, who I don't think has ever meditated a moment in her life, but she's given her life to service. She uh, is really a modern American saint and is not a yogi, but she's one of the kindest, most open, caring people I know. And she hasn't gotten there through meditation. As you may remember, a few weeks ago, I mentioned I had two dying clients over the last few years who both said their meditative life had been a complete failure. One of them had hardly meditated. The other had meditated a lot. And shortly before they died, they both said, my meditation was a failure. And in response to that, I read that Rumi poem that the yearning itself is the answer, that expecting meditation or God to reach out and say, hey, you're doing a good job is really a big mistake. There's a person in one of my other groups who was raised in an incubator. She was taken away. When she was born, there were some problems. She was in an incubator for the first several weeks of her life and has had feelings of inadequacy, uh, abandonment. And her main practice is about dealing with those feelings. That Meditation helps her calm down, but her main practice is trusting that even though she had this early abandonment, that she is fully worthy of love in the moment. So I'm just pointing out that I'd ask each person to really loosen up your opinion about how much you should meditate or is meditation necessary or how you approach meditation, that it can be used as a tool, but just as in mantra, in the beginning when we use it as a tool, eventually it becomes the expression itself, that each time you say the word or each time you sit down and watch your breath, that that is the full experience. It's not trying to get somewhere. And it's so easy to get in, to get stuck in one of these earlier stages of practice where we're looking at practice as I've got to get somewhere, I've got to get somewhere. And meditation in particular, there's, there's so much literature about it. There's so many different ways to do it. There's so many stories about how people have had these wonderful, wonderful experiences. When I was with Maharaji, before I had gone to these Goenka courses and then all this Buddhist meditation, my mind was just a shambles, and I was very frustrated in being around Maharaji, and he seemed to be this fountain of love and grace, and that I felt like I was dying of thirst, and I was coming to him with a open hands, and he'd pour this nectar into me, but my, it was like pouring it into a sieve, and it would just pour right through me because my mind was such a shambles. So I came to him and said, Maharaji, how should I meditate? And he, I thought he'd say something great, like, think of me and concentrate on your heart or your third eye. What he said was, see all women as the divine mother and you'll be able to meditate. <laughs> see all women as the mother and you'll be able to meditate. 
So going through the day, seeing this woman, that woman, having all these different qualities, being able to compare this person and that person. I'm not meditating. If I can see everybody as the divine mother, I'm already meditating. And to this day, that is still one of my main practices, saying my mantra and trying to see people as, as a face of Maharaji. There's a wonderful, wonderful podcast on the Be Here Now Network. It's guest podcast number episode 65, Women's Stories of Neem Crowley Baba with Mirror by Bush, Parvati Marcus, and Radha Baum, moderated by Nina Rao. And a friend of mine just suggested I listen to this, and I did a couple days ago. There were these just remarkable stories about, in fact, there was the best description I'd ever seen online about people talking about what it was like to be first with Maharaji. Three very dear friends of mine, I knew them in India. So that's Be Here Now Network, guest podcast number 65, Women's Stories of Neem Koli Baba. I highly recommend that if you're interested in a more devotional relationship with meditation or with life itself. Let me just briefly go through three ways of approaching meditation, and then we can have some discussion hopefully here. The first one is the, is the direct path that you go right to the end, that you don't go through all this developmental stuff that we've been talking about here over the years and over the months. You let go of, I'm meditating. You just sit, how much self is involved, you notice that, self-judgment, self-criticism, you just let go of that. You let go of, I'm meditating. There's nobody meditating. There's just experience coming. You let go of meditation. You don't make meditation a project. You don't take it seriously. It's not solemn. It's not a special event. You're just sitting down and being there. And you're not looking for a result. Basically, obviously, the, the, the goal of meditation is to go beyond I, to surrender into wholeness, into oneness, into God, into non-duality. And there's the direct path of doing that. If you have developed enough concentration and enough devotion to the path, then you can just sit down and not do anything in particular. But for most of us, we need to precede this direct path with cultivating some concentration, access concentration, enough concentration that you can see when the mind is running all over the place and bring it back, bring it back. And for almost everybody, having devotion really deeply softens and opens the path. Whether you have devotion to a guru or to the higher power or to the path itself, devotion to the Dharma, but to try to, to try to meditate without bringing the softness of the heart into it makes this direct path extremely steep and in my experience, a bit harsh. Then there's, the, then there's the devotional path to meditation, where you don't even have to call it meditation. You work with opening your heart. I think it was a week ago, or I mean, our previous meeting, maybe two meetings ago, I, I did a guided guru yoga meditation where you visualize the deity in front of you and you merge with that deity. Like right now, I'm talking, you're listening, you're sitting, you're collecting information. 
you're enjoying this, you're not enjoying this, who knows what's going on. But are you different from where you're trying to get, who you're trying to become? Are you different from Christ? Are you different from the Divine Mother? Is it possible that right now, Red Tara is Im embodied in where you are in California or Buffalo, New York, wherever you happen to be sitting? It's only the concepts that we hold on to that keep us from this devotional surrender. There's this wonderful quote from Hanuman, where he says to Ram, when I don't know who I am, I love you. When I know who I am, I am you. So that the direct path is, I am you. But a lot of times we don't know who we are, so that we get there through love. In that podcast that I was just promoting, Radha had this Wonderful little story. There's a, a great Indian devotee of Maharaji. He's now deceased, Mr. Tiwari. He was a very dear friend of mine. And uh, he came to America. He, he came to my house. He also came to Radha's house. And when he was at Radha's house, she noticed that every time he would meet a new person, he would fold his hands in front of him and he would mutter something. And she, she asked him later, what is it that you're muttering? when you meet these new people. And he said, well, I, I'm just asking Maharaji that I can please see him in each person I'm meeting. That each person that's meeting me and I'm meeting them, I'm with Baba, I'm with God, I'm with Maharaji. Which reminded me of a story where Ramdas was driving down the road in his antique car and he got pulled over by a police officer for going too slowly. <laughs> he was probably on some substance or another. We don't really remember that. But anyway, the, the, he, he immediately saw the police officer as God. And the policeman came over and said, well, you were driving kind of slowly. And Ramdash just kept relating to God. And the police officer started feeling, well, maybe he was God. And ended up uh, not giving him a ticket or just they had a great conversation. And the guy just left and said, well, you know, just be a little more careful. And I had another friend who had this Porsche that had the track record at the Riverside Raceway for stock Porsches. And one day he said, would, would I like to drive with him over the mountain, Mount Tam, to get to the ocean? I said, sure. So we were driving very fast, like sliding around the corners. And I said, don't you ever get speeding tickets for driving like this? He said, I get pulled over all the time. I never get a ticket. I said, whoa, that's kind of interesting. How do you do that? And he said, well, as soon as, the, as soon as I see that red light in the rearview mirror, I drop into I'm God and the policeman's God. And I'm so happy to see God. So the policeman comes over and the policeman says, you're going awfully fast. I said, I know, officer, but isn't it a beautiful day? I'm so happy and I'm happy to meet you. And he never gets a ticket. So I don't know if you have a strong enough practice to be able to do that, but I highly suggest that you explore the possibility of doing that. Also in this podcast, there is a very interesting statement by my friend Radha, where she was in a horrible automobile accident. She almost died. She almost became totally paralyzed. When she was in, when her car got hit by this other guy who was speeding, she didn't think about Maharaji. She didn't think about God. She thought about, oh my God, I'm in an accident. And Krishna said to her, you failed dying. 
And by the way, Ramdas failed dying also when he had the stroke. So that can we create a meditation practice that's strong enough that when all of a sudden you're just driving down the road and out of nowhere, some non-attention paying person, maybe at some inebriated person was plowing in the side of your car, that you're with God enough that in that moment, you're resting in God's arms instead of being totally lost in panic. Creating a practice that's that strong. Devotion brings energy and interest to practice. Innate tenderness is something that we can cultivate. Everybody has this basic goodness, this basic openness. And instead of using meditation as a duty, something we're trying to fix things, can it be this much kind of like softer, accepting way of moving into this innate tenderness, using centeredness, mindfulness, concentration, to notice how we're pushing that away all the time and even get to the point of feeling grateful for those events or those people in our lives that we close down to, that we leave our hearts in relationship to. Can we see it all as the divine feminine, the sacred feminine, really connecting with that moment to moment to moment? In terms of mantra and this devotional path, there's this wonderful saint, Namdev, who I've talked about before. And he had these four pith statements about mantra. And the first one is, the name permeates the entire universe densely. That's something to think about. The name permeates the entire universe densely. And what he's saying here is that with a certain set of eyes, a certain set of ears, every sound, everything we see, no matter how ugly or beautiful it is, is permeated with the essence of the name. In India, they say the person who says the mantra, the sound of the mantra, and the deity of the mantra are all the same thing. Self, God, and mantra are all exactly the same. That the sound itself is the full expression of the deity and people have had the experience i've had the experience of actually seeing consciousness radiating in each leaf of the tree in each piece of the bark there's there's stories of maharaji taking people to chitrakut a famous place in the ramayana and allowing them to see ram's name engraved on each piece of bark on the tree the name itself is form and form itself is name all form is name, all form is God. And we often are using meditation as a way of dealing with what we think isn't God. We're using it as a tool to fix things. Once again, one of the main things I'm trying to say today is so many people get stuck in using meditation as a fixing device rather than as an opportunity for communion, an opportunity for resting in our wholeness that's always there it's it's the concepts that we're not there that we're trying to fix that we're pushing away and people get attached to their suffering gurjeev said the first thing you need to do on the spiritual path is let go of attachment to your suffering i obviously spend a lot of time with dying people and very often people have an identity i'm a cancer patient i'm a dying person 
And that when people see somebody who's dying, they think, oh, there's a dying person. There's a cancer patient. Instead of, and very often I've heard people who are really sick say how lonely they are because nobody's seeing a human being. Everybody's seeing a sick person, a cancer patient, a dying person. I told the story that when I first came back from India, I got this horrible case of hepatitis and all my friends came by. I was bright yellow and my friends say, oh, Dale, I was Dale in those days. That must have been so difficult. That must be so painful. Poor Dale, poor Dale. And finally, my friend Gary Jabrilliant came over dressed up like a clown and we played for an hour. She never mentioned hepatitis once. She'd been in India. She had a degree in public health. She knew exactly what I was going through. But instead of commiserating with my suffering, she played, she opened, she stayed open, and I joined her there. Namdev's final two verses are about using mantra to begin to see who you are. Like when I was saying before, who meditates? You can spend a lot of time thinking, I'm somebody who's trying to fix myself meditating. But can you really ask who's watching the breath? Who's sitting on the cushion? Is there actually a person there? Is there actually somebody who's got problems there? Is there somebody with basic goodness? Or is there nobody? Is it just loving awareness? So for instance, suppose you're meditating, you have an emotion. Let's say you have an emotion of fear. The very first stage is you say, I am afraid. You identify with the fear. Like Radha identified with the fear when she was hit by the car. The next stage is, I feel fear. Like in Spanish, we say, yo tengo miedo. I have fear. I'm, I, it's not that I am fear. I'm feeling the fear. I'm having fear. Then the next stage is, I am aware of feeling fear. And then I welcome and embrace the fear. I go into my heart in relationship to the fear. And then we begin to see, if we look carefully enough, that fear and awareness are one. That there's not awareness of something, that awareness is the object. They merge. And finally, we rest in loving awareness. I am loving awareness. There's the whole meditative path by just the way you're dealing with one particular emotion, going from identifying with it to feeling it, to being aware you're feeling it, to opening your heart to it, to realizing that, that the emotion and the awareness of it are the same thing. And finally, just Rusting in I'm loving awareness. At the end of Ramdas's life, all he would talk about is I'm loving awareness. Just that practice. And it's not like I'm meditating to get there. It's no, each moment, I am loving awareness. It's not that I'm aware of loving awareness. That's what you are, is awareness. And awareness is inherently loving. The essence of all Buddhist meditation is not following thoughts. Letting go of the thoughts, resting in who you really are. So the path of enlightenment is not the path to enlightenment. It's not a way to get to the so-called awakened state. The path of enlightenment is understanding who we are right now. As long as we're trying to get somewhere and we're using meditation to do that, it's an endless journey. In Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about three kinds of laziness that keep us from meditating. The first kind of laziness is comfort orientation. And there's two kinds of comfort orientation. One kind of laziness is 
you enjoy comfort. Med meditating is hard, so instead I'm going to sit on the porch and have a cup of tea and look at the tree, or one that I'm much more familiar with, staying busy. Staying busy is comfortable, right? Are either of those two something that you do a lot in order to not be in that open, surrendered state? The second kind of laziness is loss of heart. When you're identified with woundedness, vulnerability, not knowing what to do. Uh, I was mentioning my friend before who was in an incubator for the beginning of her life. And she had such a hard time letting go of feeling abandoned. And that permeated her practice. And the third kind of laziness is couldn't care less. It's a sort of uh, icy, hard, fatalistic view of meditation and life itself. You just push everything away. We've talked on and on in the past about a developmental path. I don't want to do much about that today other than just mention that's one of the main ways to practice developing concentration, developing embodied mindfulness, getting grounded and centered, opening the heart, devotion, compassion, understanding that it's all Tantra, that we can see it all as an energetic expression of, of, the, of the divine, of the, of the mother, and then finally into non-duality. So that these three paths, the sudden direct path, resting in wholeness, there's the devotional path, and there's the developmental mindfulness path. A lot of meditation is about receiving, listening instead of doing and acting. As long as we're identified with our inadequacy and we haven't worked to some of these lower chakras, there's guilt and there's shame and there's a lot of fear running around. We're feeling like we're drowning in this ocean of emotions and we're reaching out to meditation as something that helps us fix ourselves and do something instead of floating in the water we we're not drowning we can just hear what's going on we can listen to what's going on we can receive the support of the water that's there the ocean if i can pound that metaphor one more time dale this is nicolas here hi um i'm wondering as somebody who prays and meditates I'm wondering as to how one compliments the other, but maybe that's not really a good word, how one speaks to the other. I don't know. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say. And I, for me, praying is so much about reaching out to and meditation, as it was said before, is so much about listening. Well, I, you know, I think praying and meditating have a similar trajectory. And it might be that you're at different stages in your prayer practice and your meditation practice, that, that both of them start out with, I'm doing something, I'm, I'm trying to meditate better, I'm trying to talk to God. And as practice deepens and it goes into the heart stage, it becomes more about listening, whether you're meditating or whether you're praying or whether you're saying a mantra. So that just as an example, if, if we're meditating, the very first stage is we're really paying attention to the content of what's going on. And when we're praying in the beginning, we're really paying attention to I'm praying, I'm hoping something happens here. And then the heart opens up and we're now in the relationship, the relationship with uh, what we're praying to. 
and then it deepens further into Tantra, where what's the nature of experience itself? Isn't it at all coming out of this basic goodness? Isn't it at all wholeness? So that those stages happen, whether you're meditating, whether you're saying a mantra, whether you're praying. The main point of this talk today is for a lot of Westerners, I think it's very easy to get stuck in some of these earlier stages of meditation because of our psychological conditioning, that we keep using meditation as a rather gross tool to calm the mind and dissolve our psychological obscurations. Maybe for many people, having a devotional practice as well, whether it's prayer or mantra, helps get into the heart stage and the tantric stage and even then into non-duality. I encourage people to read that article I sent out a long time ago. Maybe I should do that again uh, by Olga about the prayer of the heart and how she talks about you can use prayer itself as a vehicle to go into non-duality, that you begin to see who is saying, who is saying the prayer of the heart, who is praying, who's saying the mantra, who's meditating which is kind of the, the, the title of the talk, Who's, who, who meditates? Is there actually an I who's doing this? I will put my voice into the room. Hey, Jim. Hello, Dale. Hello, everyone. <clears throat> um, I like the, the term you use, psychological conditioning, um, because I feel like my psychological conditioning has really kept me away from too much devotion. It has kept me away, literally like my whole life, of any concept of God, of even any powers greater than, than you know, man or something. Um, and yet over the last 15 years, I have developed a meditation practice that um, really is probably the main, the, the largest contributor to my to my well-being. For me, what it feels like I'm, I'm doing is I'm just giving myself an empathy bath. That's kind of how I look at it. It's like I'm bathing my my poor, beat up kind of you know psychological soul or whatever in empathy by just listening and not even you know. And she mentioned listening to God. I can't even quite go that far, I guess, because of the psychological conditioning, but I can, I can do the listening and, and I can just, uh, notice I don't tend to get too involved in whether who is listening and who is, uh, meditating. Um, I don't even go that far, but what's happened and I see this just progressing is these other qualities that you've talked about, compassion, for instance, have just started to come. Right. And I haven't really had to like work at it or cultivate them or think about them. I'm just so much more naturally compassionate than I was. And I got to think it's just comes from just being compassionate towards myself or empathetic towards myself, my heart, you know, a couple hours a day or whatever I end up being able to do. So anyways, that's my contribution. Thank you. Thank you. Compassion is our true nature, and we often don't believe that. We're, we, we have the psychological conditioning so that it's not that compassion is being created, and I'm, I'm not saying Jim actually said that, but that if you just sit long enough and you don't get caught in the mind, the compassion that we are will reveal itself. 
Jim was talking about an empathy bath. And empathy is one step removed from compassion. I would even guess that Jim is having a compassion bath. Empathy means I feel what you're feeling, but I don't necessarily like it. I can like it, but compassion is I feel it. And I'm with that, and I, I open my heart to that. So I think what you were really saying, Jim, is that you're having a compassion bath and that you're beginning to realize that compassion is your true nature, that it isn't something you've got to do, that when you begin to trust sitting enough and being present enough, that this inherent compassion is going to reveal itself. This basic goodness, this basic innate tenderness begins to arise. And it kind of is joking with you. I'm gonna I'm gonna change my story. I'm giving myself a compassion, a compassion, a compassion bath or a compassionate bath. Compassion bath, I think, is better, right? <laughs> I will do that. That sounds true. It does yeah. sound true to me now. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I like the image. Getting in a bathtub, nice warm water, maybe even like one of those. What do they call it? Isolation tanks where it's just the right temperature and if they got the salts in there, so you're just floating and it's dark and it's quiet and you're just floating in compassion. You're just floating in care for yourself. You're not doing anything. The water is supporting you. The bath is supporting you. The silence is letting you open. The quiet, the, the dark, we're trusting letting go into that. Whatever you can do to trust getting there doesn't make any difference. Compassion, I'm sorry, consciousness doesn't care how you get there. You can get enlightened by taking psychedelics. You could get enlightened by meditating. You can enlighten by self-inquiry, by doing martial arts, by raising triplets. By I mean, there's all kinds of ways to do this. I'm getting increasingly leery of being a meditation salesman because so many people end up grabbing onto it and using it as a way of reifying their ego structure, using meditation as I'm a pretty good meditator, I'm a bad meditator, like that kind of thing. Whereas prayer and mantra are a little less open to that, I think, because it has this, this devotional content. But the problem with prayer and mantra is that if you don't start out with enough concentration, it's going to be very slow going. So Cultivate some devotion, cultivate some concentration, and then let go into the compassion bath with Jim. Hopefully the tub is big enough for everybody. And Maharaji said the way to meditate is just to die into love. And it was pretty easy to do that around him because he was the embodiment of that. At the same time, these last 24 hours, when both of my computers that I upgraded the OS on them, both of them went crazy. And I'm saying, look, I've got a group tomorrow. I've got a, I, I need a computer. And I was on tech support. It, it, I spent all day yesterday trying to fix something that's still, uh, one computer is not working at all. The other one is hanging on by a thread right now. And I was just watching what I was going through. There was frustration. I was aware of the frustration. The frustration continued. I couldn't aware it away. And then even beyond that, I had been listening to this podcast with my female friends from India about Maharaji. And I was in front of my altar and I was saying to Maharaji, I, I could understand why Ramas had a stroke, how that could be useful for him. I could understand 
Harada had to get in an automobile accident. I can understand how I had to lose all my money with Madoff, but I don't understand what good is coming out of me spending a day with computers here instead of writing a book or talking to people who are suffering. I couldn't figure it out. I still can't figure it out. <laughs> and maybe there's no reason. Maybe it's like, it's just like, like forced surrender. There's this wonderful story about Milarepa who ended up practicing black magic early in his life and, and killing some relatives who had stolen all of the family money after his father died. And he realized that killing somebody was not a very good uh, karmic event. So he tried to find a teacher who could help him find enlightenment in one lifetime, even though he killed somebody. And he went to all these teachers and none of them could really help him till he finally found this guy, Marpa. And Marpa said, I will help you. He's a teacher of non-duality. But before Marpa would really help him for 10 years, he, it's hard to say what word to use here. It's almost like he tortured Milarepa. He made him work in the kitchen while everybody else was getting teachings. He didn't get any teachings. He said to Milarepa, you see that hill over there with all those big stones on it? Could you make a, a square house on the east side of the hill out of those rocks. So he carried these rocks and he got open sores on his shoulders from carrying the rocks. And he came to Marpa and said, I, I built the square house. And Marpa said, you know, I think I'd rather have a round house on the west side of the mountain. So he had to carry all these rocks over the west side. You know, maybe a triangular house on the north side, right? like that. Maybe me and my computers, that's, that's in place of... Uh, carrying the rocks around the mountain. Which reminds me of a quote from Marpa's teacher, Talopa. Talopa's six words of advice, the pith instruction of meditation. Six instructions. Don't recall, let go of what is past. Don't imagine, let go of what may come. Don't think, let go of what is happening now. Don't examine. Don't try to figure anything out. Don't control. Don't try to make anything happen. Relax. Rest. Right now. Rest. Easier said than done. But that's the whole practice in six sentences. Letting go of the past, future, and the present. It's not that they go away, but you're not, you're not holding on to them. A thought will arise. He, he doesn't say, actually he says, don't think. But I think it's, thoughts are going to come. It's the nature of the mind to think. But you, you don't follow the thoughts. You don't get caught in the thoughts. The body happens. The mind happens. Keep resting in the heart. Mm -hmm.